Well, Trey mentioned, am I on? Good, yeah. Trey mentioned just those 20 years I've been at UBC, and I started to joke that the hardest ones were serving with Trey, but that wouldn't be true. In fact, uh, it was just this week that me and another one of our associate pastors were commenting on not only the good, capable hands that you all are in with Trey as your pastor, but particularly just as, uh, as we have a, a broad spectrum of ministry at UBC, uh, we have certainly felt the loss of Trey and Kristen from our staff team, and uh, we are grateful that just up the road, uh, Trey is your pastor alongside Greg. And so we're grateful for the work that God's doing here at OBC. In fact, it was in our 830 prayer time this morning, we gathered together and we prayed for you all, just like you all prayed for Key Point Church. So grateful to be here with you this afternoon. Uh, If you would, I'm going to give some introductions as I'm doing that. If you'll go ahead and turn to Psalm 17, if you have your copy of God's Word, uh, then go ahead and turn to Psalm 17. Well, Brian Stevenson's 2014 New York Times bestseller, Just Mercy, has been compared to Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. This bestseller chronicles the story of Stevenson's attempt to vindicate those in our criminal justice system who have been wrongly accused. They've been convicted, many sentenced to death, and some even executed. Stevenson himself, a Harvard grad, has made it his life's mission to fight for and advocate for those that have been wrongly wrongly uh, convicted and accused. Walter McMillan, featured in that book, Just Mercy, is one such man. Wrongly accused and convicted of a 1986 murder and sentenced to die at, at death um, on, uh, on death row in, in, Al- in Alabama courts. Until Stevenson, through this nonprofit that he's a part of, was introduced to McMillan, Walter McMillan had no voice, no advocate, and really no ability to prove his own innocence in a court of law. It's an ugly truth that for far too often and far too long in our country, one of Macmillan's greatest obstacles to overcome was simply the color of his skin. Can you imagine the feeling of knowing that you're innocent of whatever you've been convicted of, and yet there you are, completely helpless and unable to vindicate yourself, alone in your own thoughts to ponder your plight, discouraged by a broken system, distraught by those who you thought were your friends who now maybe, just maybe, have given ear to the fact that maybe you did do what they say you did, isolated from the comforts of home and the closeness of family and friends. These are bleak and dire circumstances. And as we turn to the Psalms this afternoon, I believe we find David experiencing feelings similar to that of what Walter McMillan must have felt in 1986. The exact circumstances around Psalm 17, we aren't told. But we know from books like 1 Samuel that David spent a lot of time on the run, fearing for his life at the hands of the jealous king, King Saul. In fact, it's in 1 Samuel 18, 9, that we learn from the day that David slew Goliath and took that attention away from King Saul. 1 Samuel 18, 9 says, So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. 
So in Psalm 17, we find David facing intense opposition from those that are seeking to do him harm. And David is both incapable and uninterested in seeking to vindicate himself from his enemies who are relentlessly pursuing him. The Psalms are often written using, using a literary form called chiasm. And rather than getting off in the weeds and explaining literary structures, I'll just give you a couple of examples of a chiasm or a type of chiasm that may help us because we're going to see it in our structure today. So for example, the, the statement, when the going gets tough, you all would say, the tough get going, right? So it's a statement of an argument made and then it answered in reverse order by the original statement. Here's another one. By failing to prepare, you're preparing to fail, right? So this particular psalm has a central axis of importance that we're going to see in verses 7 through 9. So I want you to keep your eyes open for contrast throughout the psalm, particularly around verses 7 through 9. So with that brief introduction, let's turn then to Psalm 17. Lord, hear a just cause. Pay attention to my cry. Listen to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Let my vindication come from you, for you see what is right. You have tested my heart. You have examined at night. You have tried me and found nothing evil. I have determined that my mouth will not sin. Concerning what people do by the words from your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps are on your path. My feet have not slipped. I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen close to me. Hear what I say. Display the wonders of your faithful love. Savior of all who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who treat me violently, my deadly enemies who surround me. They are uncaring. Their mouths speak arrogantly. They advance against me. Now they surround me. They are determined to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion, eager to tear, like a young lion lurking in ambush. Rise up, Lord. Confront him. Bring him down. With your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Lord, save me from men from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. Their sons are satisfied and they leave their surplus to their children. But I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would have your way in us through your word. And God, that you would give us ears to hear and a will to obey as we spend time in this important psalm. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, this psalm, as David noted in that introduction, is a prayer. In fact, it's the first prayer recorded in the Psalter. It's a prayer of protection. So David's crying out to God for protection, for vindication, for help. To vindicate just simply means to clear or to justify, to uphold according to evidence. So the main idea for our time together from Psalm 17 is this. God's vindication comforts his people and condemns his enemies. 
God's vindication comforts his people and condemns his enemies. And that main idea is going to serve as our basic outline in two points. So first, we're going to consider God's vindication comforts his people from verses 1 to 9. And then we'll transition a bit later. God's vindication condemns his enemies, verses 10 through 15. So let's look together then at God's vindication comforts his people. And in particular, I want to look at the first five verses. And I want us to consider David's cry. So here again, Lord, hear a just cause. Pay attention to my cry. Listen to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Let my vindication come from you, for you see what is right. You have tested my heart. You have examined me at night. You have tried me and found nothing evil. I have determined that my mouth will not sin. Concerning what people do by the words from your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps are on your path. My feet have not slipped. So here we see in this opening lines, David desperately crying out to God for help. In fact, it's upon this first reading that we might think that that David is proclaiming to be sinless, but this simply isn't the case. In Psalm 16, 2, David claims, I have nothing good besides you, speaking of the Lord. In fact, the Psalms are filled with prayers and statements of total and complete dependence on God. No, in fact, a, a more faithful reading would be to see that David is proclaiming his innocence in the face of opposition. In other words, David is proclaiming to be righteous in the things that his accusers are saying that he is guilty of or the reasons for which they're pursuing him. They're seeking his harm, not because of his actions, but because of their own arrogance and sinfulness. In fact, we're going to see it in a bit. It's their rejection of God and God's word that they would pursue God's servant. If you look back at verse 1, the Hebrew actually reads here, quite literally, hear righteousness. So God hear righteousness. So though we see David uh, understands here as he appeals to God, we see there in all caps, Lord, L-O-R-D, that's that covenant name for God. So God is being appealed to on the basis of his own ability to keep his promises. And David is saying, hear righteousness. It's, it's similar to what we see in the book of Job, where if you're familiar with the book of Job in the Old Testament in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 8, uh, the Lord says this to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. So this appeal that David is making before the Lord to hear his cause is similar to the way we find the scriptures talking about Job. One who is not sinless, but one who is walking in righteousness and therefore for the reasons he's being pursued, he is Uh, He is sinless in that sense. In verse 2, we get a fuller picture of what David is asking from God. He's asking God to vindicate him against his enemies who speak falsely, who accuse falsely, who pursue his life with vigilance. You see, it's one who thinks themselves sinless. They don't need vindication. But here we find David crying out to the Lord for that very thing. He's crying out to that covenant-keeping God, you are the righteous one. 
You are the one who judges fairly. You and you alone can vindicate both in this moment and finally. So we note there in verse 1, David's appeal is here, righteousness. In verse 2, he says, for you see what is right. So verse 1, we have hear righteousness. And in verse 2, we have see righteousness. And further there in verses 3 through 5, David argues his case before the righteous judge that God as the righteous and right judge should hear his cry, boldly going before the Lord, not in arrogance, but in humble submission. Look there again at verses 3 through 5. David says the Lord has tested his heart and tried him and found nothing. It's this phrase, visited me by night, that alludes to the fact that when we're alone in our own thoughts, in the wee hours of the night, that's where we're most often uh, finding ourselves in trouble, right? In fact, some have said nothing good happens after midnight. Another pastor has once said there's nothing more dangerous than a bored man. But David here says, you've searched me, you've seen me at night, and he proclaims his innocence in the matter. He determined with his mouth that he would not sin, or as the ESV says, he would not transgress. So here David uses contrast to show us that he is not like his enemies. So whereas they have transgressed the Lord, the Lord's word, and have pursued David, God's anointed king, he's being pursued not as a king, but as a criminal. And Saul, who was once God's anointed king, is transgressing God and no longer listening to his word, no longer experiencing the favor of God he had given himself over to his sin, or quite more accurately, more terrifying, is the Lord had given him over to his sin. David, by contrast, has not ignored God's word, and he's appealing on the basis of his humble submission to the Lord that he be vindicated. Then in verse 4, concerning what people do by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. Again, we're meant to see that contrast. David being pursued, though innocent, is continuing to trust the Lord and his word and even his ways. So this too is what's meant in verse 5 when David says, his feet have stayed on God's paths that they have not slipped. Specifically twice, David could have easily taken Saul's life from him. Again, if you're familiar with 1 Samuel chapter 24 and chapter 26, there are two examples where Saul was close enough that David could have taken action. He could have taken Saul out and ended all of his problems in one sense. But David continues to appeal to God's faithfulness and says, no, this is the Lord's anointed for now, and I'm not going to touch him. I'm not going to vindicate myself. I'm going to trust that the Lord will vindicate the Lord will see me through. So David would not take action. He would not take this action into his own hands. This is what David means when he says he's avoided the way of the violent. You see, I believe David understood that while he is and has been pursued by his enemies, his protection has been at the hand of his God. His holding fast has been at the Lord's doing. His feet not slipping has been God's keeping him on sure footing. If in fact this psalm is referring to Saul as David's enemy, 
Saul and his men are pursuing the Lord's anointed and have taken up the ways of the violent. David maintains and pleads his innocence before the righteous judge. But I want you to note something, that before David ever asks the Lord for anything, he goes before the Lord having examined himself and asking the Lord to do the same. So David, even as his enemies surround him, we see in verse 11, he thinks carefully about his prayer. He examines his own heart and asks God to do the same. And I wonder for you this afternoon, do you pray like that? Do you pray carefully considering the condition of your own heart before you approach the throne of grace and appeal to God? Or do you neglect self-reflection and in favor pursue self-gratification? Do you believe the Lord even hears? And if he does hear, is he concerned? Do you pray at all? Or do you simply seek to take matters into your own hands? Well, let me encourage you to encourage your elders, those who faithfully teach you and pray for you. Let them know you're praying for them. Let them know that you are joyfully joyfully submitting under their leadership. It was a great encouragement to me this morning to have been prayed for by our church as we were praying together and praying for you. And it was a great joy to get messages over the week of Trey letting me know he's praying for me as I'm preparing. In fact, it's Robert Murray McShane once said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and no more. So God invites us, he hears us, and he answers us according to his will when we pray. So pray and trust and watch and wait on the Lord regardless of your present circumstance. David's cry, his prayer to this covenant-keeping God who alone could vindicate on the basis of his own character and on behalf of David, he's innocent in the matter, and yet here he is patiently waiting patiently enduring, and faithfully crying out to God. I want us to look at David's comfort in verses 6 through 9. So this second section of the psalm opens with David, having proclaimed his innocence and having searched his own heart, having searched his own mind, having considered his actions, appealing to God on the basis of God's righteousness and on his right standing before God as one who is seeking to be obedient. In verse 6, he says, I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Hear what I say. You see, if David's appealing to God on anything other than God's own righteousness, this prayer is anything but brazen. But it's not brazen. Rather, it's contrite and full of humility. Consider if David, little old David, would appeal to the God of the universe and say, hey, you're going to listen to me. But that's not what's going on. David is crying out for help in utter desperation, knowing that only the Lord can vindicate. And like a father who listens intently to the words of his children, and if he deems it wise to grant their request, he does so. But before that appeal is ever made, every dad knows the voice of his children and that heart-melting appeal of, hey, dad, that comes from their child just before they issue that request. And I think this appeal in verse 6 should be seen similarly. 
though the stakes are high for David and God is perfect in his, in his, every, uh, in his every being, in every part of his character, he's perfect. He's willing and able to hear David, to comfort David, and to vindicate David. Remember, it was verse 1 that David called out to God by his covenant-keeping name, Yahweh. And in verse 6, the word David uses here to reference God has another sense, that of like creator God. So covenant-keeping God and creator God. And then look what he does in verses 7 through 9. Listen, display the wonders of your faithful love. Savior of all who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who treat me violently, my deadly enemies who surround me. So in this chiastic structure that we talked about a minute ago, we get the sort of the crescendo of the psalm. It comes in the middle in verses 7 through 9. And what David does here is really important, very powerful for us. So when David says in verse 7, display the wonders, he's calling on God to act as he has in history uh, on behalf of his people. So let's think just for a minute. God made a covenant people for himself out of nothing in Abraham. He protected his people when the angel of death passed over his people in the homes in captivity in Egypt. He led them out of Egypt, not only um, on dry ground, but he led them out with food and bounty to go into the next stage of their journey. He provided for them in the wilderness manna from heaven. He gave them the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, abundance and blessing. So David says, display the wonders, display your wonders, but more display the wonders of what? And we learn there, he says, display the wonders of your faithful love. So it's your steadfast love, again, drawing on that covenant keeping love of God to his people. But we're going to learn that that covenant-keeping promise, that love of God isn't available to everyone, but it is available freely to all those who seek refuge in God. Brothers and sisters, God is our refuge, and we can shelter in his care. If you look with me at verses 8 and following, the phrase, the pupil of your eye and the shadow of your wing, those denote protection and safekeeping. So the pupil obviously is that centermost portion of the eye and your body is conditioned when an object comes near the pupil for your eyelid to close. Don't try it. I don't want you to poke your eye out. And then you'd be like, no, it didn't, it didn't work. (laughs) Similarly, hiding in the shadow of your wings displays that, uh, that imagery of shelter, like a bird um, who covers her young from harm with her wings so too does the Lord's love surround and cover his people. It's this language in 6 through 9 that we see mirroring other parts of the Psalms. I'm sorry, other parts of the Scriptures. In particular, there are two songs of Moses from the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy. And David here is appealing to God to act in the present as he has in the past. So God has kept his covenant 
in the past, therefore he can be expected to do it now. That's the logic that David is clinging to. God's done this in in, in salvation history in the past. He's going to do this in salvation history in the present. And this is my present. I can trust that God's going to be faithful because he's always been faithful. And our English uh, translations, they don't quite pick it up word for word. But I want you to listen in verse 7. David uses the same words Moses uses in Exodus 15, 11 through 13. So I want you to key in on those phrases and ideas from verse seven. Display the wonders, steadfast love in God's right hand. And listen then as I read Exodus 15, 11 through 13. Here's Exodus 15. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you glorious in holiness? Revered with praises, performing wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. And similarly, in verse 8, David uses similar words that Moses uses in Deuteronomy 32. So key on that, pupil, uh, uh, the pupil of the eye and the shelter in the wings. Deuteronomy 32.10, he found him in a desolate land, in a barren, howling wilderness. He surrounded him, cared for him, and protected him as the pupil of his eye. So note even David's boldness in the way he petitions God to hear him in verse 6. He says, I call on you because you will answer me, O God. Well, why does he say that? Because David is remembering back on God's faithfulness to his people in salvation past wondrously acting on their behalf. So he appeals to the God who keeps his covenant, who remembers his promises, who protects his people, who fights for his people. David's comfort is in the very character of God who does not break or forget any of his promises. What about you? Where is your comfort in the middle of, or in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship or trials or calamity or even times of plenty, do you call out to God with confidence that he hears and that he's able to act? Knowing that God, the righteous judge, sees all, he knows all, and that he has always and will always vindicate his people. That's David's comfort. But will it be yours. See, David can't vindicate himself and he won't seek to take matters into his own hands. And while I trust David doesn't know exactly how in this moment it's all going to play out, his confidence is no less secure in God's faithfulness. You see, there's no greater, li- there's no greater comfort in this life than when we trust the sovereign hand of God who keeps his promises. If God failed to keep his promises, then he would cease to be God. These words of David now turn from making his case of innocence and asking God to protect him in the mounting case against his enemies. So our second point, God's vindication condemns his enemies. I want us to look first at David's case in verses 10 through 12. Listen again. They are uncaring. Their mouths speak arrogantly. They advance against me. Now they surround me. 
They are determined to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion, eager to tear, like a young lion lurking in ambush. So I believe we're meant to continue to see this contrast building, that right standing before God that David claims as he trusts the Lord is the opposite that his enemies have. So whereas David's heart was tried and tested and nothing found, he says his mouth didn't sin, that he avoided the ways of the violent, that his feet didn't slip. Whereas his enemies, they are, verses 10 through 12, they are uncaring. They speak arrogantly. They surround God's anointed. They're determined to throw him to the ground. They're eager to tear at him like a lion, like a young lion lurking in ambush. David's enemies at every turn are presented as the opposite of David as the two stand before the righteous judge. Hear righteousness, O Lord. See righteousness, O Lord. And David appeals to God on the basis of God's character and his present right standing before God. He builds his case to God, highlighting his enemy's disobedience and their hard-heartedness towards God. This makes him not only David's enemies, this in fact makes them God's enemies. And that's what the imagery that David gives in his description when he says they're uncaring or they're heartless, that their mouths speak arrogantly, so they're arrogant, that they're determined to throw them to the ground, that they're set to do violence against him. Brothers and sisters, we too are to find comfort that God's enemies are also our enemies as we seek to be obedient to God. And what I mean by that is they're enemies in the sense that those who oppose you as you side with God and walk in his ways, those are God's enemies too. But just like David, it's not our job to vindicate ourselves. It's the righteous judge who will do the vindicating. And David's enemies have set themselves against God And so too do any today who have done likewise. So for all those who have set themselves against God and against his word and against his ways, well, this psalm would understand them to be enemies of God. But take comfort because remember, we too once were the enemies of God, subject to his just judgment. We were not friends of God, but enemies. This this just judgment that we read of was was what we heard in our scripture reading in 2 Peter chapter 3. And David's case is that he's innocent of transgressions before God and his, his contentment is in the Lord's ability to vindicate him and deal with his enemies. So look with me at David's contentment in verses 13 through 15. He's content in knowing that God will vindicate him and God's vindication will heap judgment on his enemies, because God will always vindicate his own name and he will not share his glory with another. In verses 13 through 15, we see, rise up, Lord, confront him, bring him down. With your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. Their sons are satisfied and they leave their surplus to their children. We'll stop there for a moment. So verse 13, rise up. Again, we see, O Lord, or that Yahweh, that covenant-keeping name. David says, confront 
them. Bring them down. With your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Yahweh, save me from men, from men of the world. These men, we learn, their portion is in this world. We see in David's writing that he says that God fills their bellies with what they have in store. The sense here is that God has given them over fully to what they think satisfies them. So they heap on them their fill, that what they crave. So whatever the world can give them in an illusion of satisfaction, they're heaping it full. Their bellies are full of whatever this world can offer them, but only what this world can offer them. In fact, the second part of Verse 14 there, the imagery of satisfaction with children and their abundance that they leave to their infants. I believe David is issuing a warning of what a legacy of one's life can leave to their children. But this vindication of God that comforts his people is passed down to God's people as a spiritual inheritance of a life well lived to the next generation, not as an extension of salvation, but as a stone of remembrance. And it's that reason as we share our own testimonies with each other, we don't make much of us, we make much of God. We don't make much of our sin, we make much of God's grace. Because even our testimonies are meant to display the wonders of the glories of the gospel to each other, that we would make much of God. But David's enemies, by their actions, they show that they hated God, that they've rejected his word, that they've rejected his anointed, and they're filling their bellies only with whatever this world can give them. And they're going to pass on sort of that uh, rotting, amassing worldliness from one generation down to the next. David's contentment, in part, is that he need not seek to vindicate himself before his enemies. God has and always will vindicate his own name. But I also think that David can make such a claim of his enemy's portion being this life because David is looking forward to one born of his line who will reign as the righteous judge forever. So his enemy's portion is in this life and whatever they can amass for themselves now, David says, no, my portion is bound up in the promises of God and the endless bounty of the life to come with God, where every follower will have a full inheritance of God, of imaginal, unimaginable uh, blessing and bounty, all for the glory of his great name. David was looking forward in salvation history to the promise of one who would be born from his line, of whose kingdom would not end, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And only through Christ do we have hope to be satisfied in his likeness. You see, it was Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, the visible image of the invisible God, the righteous one who would satisfy and fulfill all the promises of God, one who would similarly be unjustly accused, unjustly pursued by his enemies. Only this one, this righteous one, would be unjustly tried and crucified for your sake and for mine. Friends, this is the gospel message that God, because of his great love with which he loved us, sent his perfect 
righteous one and only son to be born a baby, to be raised up to man, to be tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted, and yet in perfect and full obedience, never sinned. And in perfect obedience, Christ willingly laid down his life, taking upon the sin of the whole world, was crucified, was buried, and then three days later, praise God, the grave couldn't hold him. He ascended from the grave, conquering sin and death, and therefore securing for all who would place their hope and faith and trust in him the right to become sons of God, full inheritance of all that God has. And best of all, we get God. So our bellies aren't filled only with what this life can amass, but our eyes and our gaze are directed heavenward to the endless bounty of a God who owns it all. But for David's enemies in this life, they could only have their hearts set on whatever they could amass now. And just as heaven's joys are far greater than all we can hope and imagine in the presence of the glory of God, where we experience his favor, his blessing, and having a full inheritance. In contrast, hell is far worse than anything we can imagine in the presence of the wrath of God, never ceasing and never relenting. So if you're not a Christian and you're here this afternoon, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're here on a week that's just like every other week when you come to OBC. You're going to hear the gospel message faithfully proclaimed from this pulpit because part of what is so exciting about getting to be a, 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 a preacher of God's word is we get the joy and privilege of watching God do what he's done for us, which is awakening the dead, giving new eyes to the blind. So if you're here this afternoon, my prayer is that you would heed that gospel message, that you would talk with somebody who came with you, that you'll catch me after the service and let me share with you more about what it looks like to experience the favor of God as one who has repented of their sins and is walking in righteousness, walking in faith and repentance. Jesus Christ, in fact, was a man acquainted with sorrow. He knows your hurt and his cares and your cares. However, his simply is only for those who stop, stop seeking to dismiss God and rather surrender to God. He is that loving father that we talked about earlier who delights in his children and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Christian, what about you? Are you hoping in the things of this world today? Have you some circumstance, some burden, some predicament, that has you confused about where your hope lies, trusting in something other than the steadfast love of God, I think God's word would call us to repent, to call upon the name of the Lord in faith and trust in the God of your salvation, that you would rest secure in the shadow of his wings, knowing that you are like the pupil of his eye, that you would rest confident in God's ability to vindicate you and to judge his enemies. I said a minute ago that part of David's contentment was looking to his portion in the life to come. Look with me at verse 15 
And listen to what David says. But I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. You see, this is a statement of declaration. We are to see the contrast between David and his enemies. This also is a statement of resolute confidence, of final vindication, that glory awaits David. And even if his enemies who surround him take his life, David is satisfied knowing that when he awakes, he will see the face of his God. When I awake, that's resurrection language. If you've got your Bible open, just look over there at Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, and and hear David's hope of, of resurrection. In Psalm 16, verse 9, it says, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely, for you will not abandon my abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy, and at your right hand are eternal pleasures. This is a statement of resolute hope in the promises of a faithful God. He says, I will be satisfied. That statement is one of filled to in abundance. The same as the men of this world, their bellies will be filled with only what this world can bring them. David says, I will be satisfied in the pleasures that are at your right hand. I will be satisfied to overflowing at seeing the very face of God. Psalm 17 began with hear righteousness in verse 1. And it concludes with the hope of beholding righteousness in verse 15. And these bookends that Jesus Christ is the righteous one and that we only have right standing before God to behold his likeness because of him, that's to hem us in and bolster our faith. Just as David would claim the promises of God looking back into history and looking forward to that day when he would see the face of Christ, so too are we to hope in God. You see, for Walter McMillan, his temporal vindication came at the diligent persistence of Brian Stevenson and that team of attorneys. But there's no vindication um, that's as necessary as a final vindication resulting in the forgiveness of sin and peace that surpasses all understanding. This is the vindication only God can do and has done through Christ Jesus. So I ask you, who are you placing your hope in for vindication from your sin? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your love and kindness to us in Christ. We're grateful that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Father, we're grateful that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we are humbled that your glory extends from salvation past to salvation present through eternity forever. You are the same. And Father, you vindicate your people because your glory 
is unmatchable and you will not share it with another. And so, Father, we give you praise that in your, the shadow of your wings, we find comfort and rest. We give you praise that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. So, Father, we pray now that you would give us the will to obey. And we pray these things in Jesus Christ for your glory. Amen. Well, it's because of this goodness of God that we can sing the truths of our last song, a song that sings of the glorious realities that we are, in fact, in Christ, bound for eternity, that this place is not our home. So let's stand and sing together on Jordan's stormy banks. Thank you.